Welcome, everyone. You're tuning in to the Beyond the Pulse podcast, brought to you by the expert doctors at My Cardiologist, where we discuss a wide range of topics related to cardiovascular wellness and provide you with the knowledge, motivation, tips, and tools to help you make informed choices about your heart health. My Cardiologist is proud to be a leading provider of comprehensive cardiovascular care, serving the South Florida community for over 60 years. And we're thrilled to extend our care beyond the clinic through this podcast. Thank you for joining us. My name is Dr. George Leaf. I'm a non-invasive general cardiologist with an interest in cardiac imaging. I finished my cardiology fellowship training at Johns Hopkins as of the summer of 2021, and I'm currently in a, a general practice in Palm Beach County. Today's episode is on the advancements of cardiac imaging and early detection. And I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thank you for having be, be, me. Because you're an expert in this. I'm glad, glad to be here. I think this was, an, uh, this was a particular area of interest at my, my fellowship program as well. Hopkins did a lot of pioneering work in this. Nice. So tell me a little bit about the latest enhancements in this type of imagery technology and maybe what the patients should be asking for okay. when they come in. So I think the two most interesting things that have come out in cardiac imaging in the last decade or so both relate to cardiac CT. One of them is using cardiac CT as a way to look at the coronary arteries directly. It's sort of an alternative to a stress test. You can A stress test looks at blood flow in the heart using a nuclear tracer, and then wherever, the, wherever it lights up, that means blood flow goes there. Wherever it doesn't light up, you're not getting enough blood flow. Uh, a coronary CT angiogram is an alternative where you use a CAT scan to directly image the coronary arteries and look for blockages. So this can be very useful because you can catch blockages that are only you know, partial before they've become severe. And it's also great for, de- it's, it's great for detecting anomalous coronary arteries, which can be a, a, something that can cause chest pain in younger people who might not have risk factors that you would usually think of for heart disease, but sometimes they have a you know, a congenital mislocation of a coronary artery. And that can be difficult to pick up with a traditional stress test, but can be very easily seen on a CT scan. So the technology around the CT scans has come on by leaps and bounds in the last couple of years. The essential problem is that the heart is a moving object. So most other things, if you're trying to do a CAT scan of the brain, the brain is basically staying still. It's not beating, you know, where the heart is. So you have to, the CT scans have had to become better and better to be able to get a picture that's not blurred. You can think about it just like the shutter speed of a camera. Mm. You have to have the shutter speed faster than the object you're trying to photograph is moving. But as the CT scans have gotten better and better, and as the detector arrays have gotten larger and larger, so the the detector array is how much of the heart in the vertical axis you can image at once. And in the old days, they would have to build it up by getting like one slice at a time. And obviously that's terrible if you're trying to image a moving object. But now the, with the new detectors, you can get the entire heart in one heartbeat. Really? Yes. So they can, you can either do it by having the detector be just that big, like 16 centimeters vertically, or by having the detector move fast enough that you can kind of catch the entire heart within one spin. Oh, cool. And different companies have done that differently. Um, so that's, that's one very exciting development, but... I will say that cardiac CT has not realized its full potential in cardiology yet. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the technology is new. The machines that are able to do this tend to be only the newest high-end machines that not everyone has access to. So at large center, you'll see them at large centers, but you know, out, out in the community, it may not be as easy to get access to. And also the expertise to read these scans is not widely available yet. So the, the more traditional thing of the nuclear stress test is still much more widely used. 
And, you know, for most people, I think the nuclear stress testing is a perfectly reasonable way to go. There are definitely some situations where I think cardiac CT can be very helpful, though, especially if you have young people where there's a concern about you're thinking maybe anomalous coronaries or, uh, you know, a, a spontaneous coronary dissection, which is something you can sometimes see in so you're more prone to see in young women who don't have other risk factors for vascular disease. What is that? So a spontaneous coronary dissection is when the lining of the coronary artery just tears by itself. Oh, and so with the blood's kind of flowing well, out it of it? it forms like a, a flap, right? If you think about like the, um, what's the best way to describe this? It's like if you are trying to, if you're trying to hang up your suit coat on and you, and the coat hanger catches the lining of the coat and tears the sleeve. Oh. So it's not like there's, you know, it's not like there's bleeding extravasating a blood out of the vessel, but there's this flap and which could cause a blockage, which can be a problem. So if there's chest pain, you know, you, you might think of that more in, in younger, in young women, you can see this, it tends not to be in the people who you would typically think of as having coronary disease, you know, your older, you know, 55 and up patients. So if you have these kind of atypical pains, we were thinking more, maybe more of one of these, un, these less common causes, or if you also want to get structural information about the heart, uh, or I've used, I've used it a couple of times when we thought there was a coronary fistula where there are two uh, you know, vessels that are abnormally connected to each other. It can be very useful in those situations. So I would say there's, there's definitely a few situations where you, the cardiac CT is really helpful uh, with information that you couldn't get from a, from a nuclear stress test. So I hear the phrase CT scan all the yes. time. What does CT stand for? A CT, it stands for computed tomography. And if you oh. hear CAT scan, that's the same thing. Okay. It's, it's not to do with, you know, felines. It's, it's computer-assisted tomography. <laughs> uh, so a CAT scan is basically a type of X-ray. CT detectors, CT machines use X-rays. But in a, an X-ray, if you think of, you know, what you've seen in the past, is um, just a planar uh, image. So they, they pass x-rays from one side of the body to the other onto a film and get a, a picture from that. A CT scan, they do the same thing, but they basically move the detector all the way around your body to build up a three-dimensional image and then do a computer reconstruction uh, based on the information they get from having information in all of these different planes. Wow, so this is advanced and fairly new technology comparatively to like past couple decades. Yes, yes and no. So I would CT started being developed in the 1970s. Okay. It's, but that it was very primitive in those days. That was when you were talking about getting one slice at a time and they would literally, they developed it for the brain first and they would literally have to hold people in a vice to hold them still enough because this, these, if you think about like the old days when they would do a paint a portrait and people would have to hold (laughs) completely still and you know like in the early days of photography it was like this too but people would literally have their head in a vice to get a picture taken it was exactly like that that because it would just took so so long to get a picture and any movement would foul it up wow so if you're thinking about yes it did exist in the 70s but in a very very primitive form so now to have you know machines that can image the entire head in under a second or we can get the entire we can get the entire heart in the span of one heartbeat this is this is quite new. Okay, so there's this CAT scan, CT scan. What other options are there? Okay. So when you're talking about cardiac imaging, generally you have four four types of imaging. You have the ultrasound. This is also called an, called an echocardiogram. So this uses sound waves to get a moving picture of the heart. 
So you can see the heart moving in real time. You can see the heart function. You can see the heart valves. It's the same type of technology that they use to it's look at the It's exactly the same okay. as, as used obstetrically. Uh, just a question where you put the probe. So the great thing about ultrasound is that it has uh, no radiation, and you see things in real time. It has very high temporal resolution. So you see the heart beating in real time. You see the valves moving in real time. Wow. Uh, so that can give you a lot of useful information about the heart, it, but it, what it doesn't usually answer is that it, it doesn't give you information about um, block, blockages in the coronary arteries. They're just too small to see on, on echocardiography. So what you're actually seeing there is the movement of the walls of the heart, the chambers, and the valves. So it's great to see, is there a part of the heart that's not moving? Is there a valve that's not functioning properly? Is there a valve that's leaking? That's the kind of information you get from an echo. I see. So if I'm understanding correctly, the echo, you're seeing like a real-time image of the heart, the outside of the heart, mm -hmm. while the CAT scans more like a blueprint where you're seeing every layer of it. Correct. You can okay. see the, um, yeah, the, the echocardiogram, you see the, the large movements of the heart. The CAT scan, if it's done properly, you can see um, uh, the you can see the tissues of the heart. If you do it, you know, in, you can you can see the heart moving as well. Although the temporal resolution of a CAT scan is not as good as an as an ultrasound, that's kind of the trade off. The CT will oh. give you much higher spatial resolution at the cost of temporal resolution. And of course, the CT can pick up smaller structures like the coronary arteries very well. The coronary arteries are only a few millimeters across. You know, you're talking about wow. things that are about this big. That's small. So you're not, <laughs> yeah. So you, you can see that very well on a good quality CT scan. Um, the next one is some form of nuclear stress testing. And there are a couple of different things under that that you don't need to worry so much about. But nuclear stress testing uses a radioactive tracer that gets injected into the blood. It's, these are all at low levels. That's not, the, level, the amount of radiation from this is low. You're making a face. Yeah, this, I was about right? to say, that sounds kind of yeah. pokey. It uses a, a low level of a radioactive tracer that's ejected in the bloodstream. And then the radioactive tracer goes wherever the blood goes. So what you do is you get someone, uh, you take a picture of their heart at rest, you and then you take a picture of their heart at exercise, and you look where this radioactive tracer goes. So if the radioactive tracer just drops out of a part of the heart when they're exercising, that means it's not getting enough blood flow. So this is an indirect way of looking for a blockage. You're looking for the consequence of the blockage, which is the inadequate blood flow. So it's basically like a dye that you're putting in the blood and you're able to see exactly where the blood's going. Yes. And what's the danger to blood not reaching a certain part. So that's what causes the symptoms of chest pain. If you have someone who's you know, describing what we would call classic angina, where they have a squeezing chest pain with walking, it's because there's a blocked artery that's not allowing enough blood flow through when they exercise. So that means that they have coronary disease and they'll need, you know, risk, they'll need aggressive risk factor modification and potentially angiography and putting a stent in to prevent them from having, uh, you know, worsening disease, heart attack, um, now, I'm a layman. I know what a heart attack is. Yes. But I kind of don't. Like, okay. what's the danger of it? So, I mean, the, and these are terms that are sometimes used imprecisely. And I think it's important because in, in medicine, we use terms that have very precise meanings. So a heart attack or the, the precise technical term for it is a myocardial infarction. What this means is that you have a acute formation of a blockage in one of the coronary arteries that cuts off blood flow and causes the heart muscle to begin to die. 
Mm, because the blood, it is right. providing all the oxygen and right. nutrients to every tissue. And so when it doesn't reach a certain spot, it shuts down Correct. and that's not good. And of course, the heart mus- the heart is muscle. It's extremely metabolically active. And unlike a muscle in, say, your leg, it can't just stop. Sure. <laughs> right. So it has very high metabolic needs. It needs a lot of oxygen. It needs a lot uh, of nutrients delivered to it to keep functioning. If it, if, it, if it gets that cut off, it starts to die very quickly. Within okay. 15, 20 minutes. Wow. So when you if you suddenly block the vessel, and usually what happens is you have these kind of fatty cholesterol plaques, and then if one of them ruptures and exposes all of this fatty inflammatory debris from the inside of the plaque, it, then the, the body recognizes this as a problem, forms a clot on it, and that blocks the vessel. Yes, I've so heard of So that's what a heart clot. attack is, is okay. that sudden blockage in the vessel, typically caused by a ruptured... Uh, plaque. Okay. So we've talked about the nuclear. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the echo. We've talked about the CT CAT scan. What's an MRI? Yeah. The MRI is the last one. And it's the one you'll probably see used the least often of the four. Why? Uh, Because MRI is something of a niche study. It can provide very useful information in certain situations, but from the number of patients who come to me with general cardiology issues who need an MRI is pretty small. The MRI, what it's useful for is that it provides a very high degree of characterization of body tissues. Uh, because MRI, unlike, unlike CT, CT is using x-rays. Okay. So the degree to which things show up differently on x-ray is based on how effectively they block x-rays from getting through. So bone shows up very dense, lung shows up the opposite. Mm. Right, two tissues that have similar ability to block X-rays look the same, so you can't really differentiate different tissues extremely well. And you see this very vividly if you put a brain CT next to a brain MRI. That the brain MRI shows all the little contours, all the structure of the brain, whereas the CT is just kind of a, a, a lump. So the MRI, you can get the same kind of information about the heart. It's very good at looking for subtle evidence of inflammation, of scarring. It's very good at looking for evidence of certain uh, diseases like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a a genetic disease that causes abnormal thickening of the heart muscle. So it's very good for looking at the heart tissues, looking for certain specific things, but it's not something that we generally need in most situations. Okay, that's good to know. And I, I personally read all three of the others. I do not read cardiac MRIs myself because it's it's kind of a niche thing, and I don't. It doesn't come up often enough. All right, so we just went through four of the main testing that we do. How do I know when I need to take some of these tests? Okay, so what I would say is if you if you're having symptoms of heart disease, and typically these would be related to either chest pain, chest pressure shortness of breath, getting winded more than you, than you used to, not having the same stamina you used to, or if you start to develop you know, issues of unexplained swelling in the, in the feet or the ankles, those would all be the signs that there's something amiss with the heart and it needs to be looked at. I would say typically we start with the ultrasound because it's easy, it's low risk, it's no radiation, and that shows if there's anything structurally wrong with the heart. Is it not beating properly? Is one of the valves not working? If there's a concern about a coronary blockage, then the next step will be either a nuclear stress test or a coronary CT. Now, if you just want information about your risk, if you're someone who is, you know, maybe getting a little older, maybe doesn't have the, hasn't had the best lifestyle in terms of cardiac risk in the past, and you want to know, 
what's my risk? Should I be taking a statin? How aggressively should I be trying to lower my cholesterol? You can get a, a calcium score, which is a, no, it's a non-contrast CT scan. Basically, it's a way of just looking at how much plaque there is in the heart. And you're not trying to answer the question of, is there a plaque that is causing an obstruction? You just want to know how much plaque is there in aggregate. And then based on that, you can make decisions about, do I need to be on a statin? Do I need to be on aspirin? So that can be a very helpful test if you want to know about your risk and if you want to know, should I be taking aspirin, should I be taking a statin? Maybe you have a family history. Maybe your, um, your risk factors don't look so bad on paper, but you have family who had heart attacks at young ages and their risk factors didn't look so bad on paper either. I definitely have patients like that. I have patients who are kind of statin reluctant. They, on paper, their risk factors suggest they would benefit from a statin, but they they're not sure about it, they want to know. And I've recommended they get this calcium score as well. And that can be very useful as a tie break. So, you know, if you find you do have plaque already, then it's not theoretical anymore, then it's quite real. And that can persuade people to, you know, take things more seriously and take a medication that they otherwise didn't want to. Alternatively, if it comes back clear, you know, you can probably pretty safely hold off the statin and come back for another one in a couple of years. What's the difference between a statin and an aspirin? Okay. So, Aspirin is, well, we all have it in our medicine cabinets at home. Aspirin inhibits platelets from sticking together. Platelets are the little fragments of cells that come together to form a clot in the, uh, in, in the blood. So if you're cut, the first thing that happens is all the platelets will be activated. They'll form a plug there. Which that, is good to prevent. Which is good yeah, yeah. in some circumstances. Right. It's good if you get cut. It's good if you've been mauled by a tiger. And... <laughs> You, you know, most of our, our physiology is adapted to the situations that we would have faced 10,000 years ago on the savannah. It's not adapted to modern life. So your body's adapted to deal with things like being mauled by a tiger or crossing the Sahara. It's not really adapted to deal with, you know, these sort of cardiac problems we're talking about. Because, you know, ancestrally, people didn't live long enough to get this, these sort of issues. So, yes, the... The platelets coming together and forming that platelet plug is a good thing if you've been cut. It's not such a good thing if you have one of these ruptured plaques and then that plug is blocking the blood flow to, your, to part of your heart muscle. So the aspirin inhibits those platelets from sticking together. It makes, every, it makes the platelets a bit less sticky. So for people who've already ha- had a heart attack or a stroke or a mini stroke, we call it TIA, we do recommend that they, that they take aspirin as a prevention. A statin is something different. They're both preventative measures, but a statin acts in the liver to inhibit the production of cholesterol. Oh. So statin medications block an enzyme in the liver that is involved in producing cholesterol. Now, cholesterol is an essential part of your body. It's involved. It's a main constituent of every uh, cell membrane in your body. So you, you can't have no cholesterol. But when you have excess of what's called LDL, which is the low-density lipoprotein. It's a particle formed from cholesterol as well as certain, certain proteins. That particle getting stuck in the wall of the blood vessels is what causes these fatty plaques. So the idea is that if you reduce the amount of cholesterol being synthesized in the liver, the liver will more enthusiastically gather these LDLs back up out of the bloodstream, reduce the LDL level, and reduce the formation of these fatty plaques. Nice. Are there any specific imaging techniques that somebody should look into as far as detecting early signs of heart disease? So for early signs of coronary disease, it's that cor- it's that uh, calcium score that I talked about, a non-contrast CT. If you want to know, do I have plaque? Am I at risk? Should I be taking a statin? 
you know, there are risk scores. We can put your risk factors into a, a calculator, you know, your age, your sex, your race, your blood pressure, your cholesterol numbers, and it'll give us a prediction. But there are some very important things that aren't in that model, the biggest one of which is family history. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to know, then the calcium score can be helpful. How early do you think somebody should go in to get a calcium score? I would say that's something to be at least thinking about. For men, probably age 45 and up, women 55 and up. Okay. You know, coronary disease for men tends to start in the 40s. Women are relatively protected until after menopause. Why does science determine that? You know, why why is there the sex difference? Yeah. Estrogen. Ah. Estrogen seems to be protective from coronary disease until, and when that goes away at menopause, then then women start catching up with men as far as the as the coronary risk. So you mentioned family history. Should I be going in earlier than forty five if I have a family? I, what I would say is, if you have a family history of someone who had heart problems at a young age and did not have another obvious explanation for. So if you say my father died at 50 of a heart attack, but he was a heavy smoker, sure, I don't know that that impacts your risk so much because there's a, there's a reason you know, that, that your father had premature coronary disease, which was the, the, the heavy smoking. But if you say, you know, look, my father, my uncle, they had heart attacks in their 40s, and they were living a normal life. You know, okay, maybe they weren't you know, super you know, fit, fitness gurus. You sure. know, they weren't you know, Instagram-level personal <laughs> trainers, but they were living a normal life. They weren't doing anything heinous that should have put them at, at that kind of risk. And now I'm getting to that age, and I want to know about my risk. I would say that that's a very reasonable concern. So really, I would say it's if you have family members who had – premature coronary disease, uh, and there's not an obvious reason for it. Then I should go in early. Then you should go in early and have that talked, have that investigated. And you should have, you should know what your blood pressure is. Really, everyone should know that because there's a lot of undiagnosed hypertension out there. And there's a reason we call it a silent killer because it tends not to have any symptoms until it's already done a fair bit of damage. So what is hypertension? Hypertension is high blood pressure. High blood pressure, to my understanding, is just when the blood's going too fast? or It's, it's not fast. It? it literally is the pressure. If you think about water pressure, it's no different. Oh, so it's like the valves are struggling to get the blood through, and so it's kind of... It's the... I mean, if you think about the water pressure coming out of your shower head, it is exactly the same as that. Oh, wow. It's the, uh, the pressure that the blood is put under by the heart to pump it through the body. Generally, we want your blood pressure to be about 120 over 80. The 120 is called the systolic, the top number. That reflects the blood pressure when the heart is squeezing. The bottom number, the diastolic, is the pressure when the heart is relaxing. Oh, so, I didn't you know, know Obviously, that. it's higher when the heart's pumping and then the heart relaxes, it drops. And that's so, what's pushing all the blood that's through. The, because the, the propulsive force here comes from the heart, the contraction of the heart. Mm-hmm. So, but if, you're, if your blood pressure is chronically high, and generally what that reflects is either that the body is retaining too much blood volume from too much salt, or that the there's too much constriction of the blood vessel, that everything's clamped down too much. And most blood pressure medicines, they do one of those two things. Either they relax the blood vessels or they prompt your body to get rid of salt. So if you have if you're forcing the heart to work against those higher pressures over the long term, you're putting yourself at risk for heart disease and also for stroke down the line. Okay. And and what exactly is a stroke? A stroke is exactly the same thing we talked about ex- with the heart attack except in the brain. Oh, yeah. man. So a stroke is when you have form an acute blockage of a blood vessel in the brain instead of in the heart. 
cool. Yeah, because we hear about this stuff all the time, and I understand kind of like what happens after, but I don't really. I didn't understand until today what exactly well, the, it was. The terms are often used imprecisely, and I think that's why it's mm. important that we be clear about what we mean. So, yeah, a stroke is an acute ischemic event in the brain, which is to say there's a sudden um, a blockage that cuts off blood flow to a part of the brain. Mm. And the brain also is very metabolically active tissue, and it starts to die almost instantly when blood flow is cut off. All right, so you mentioned high blood pressure, but what's the effect of low blood pressure? Pressure. Right. So if your blood pressure is too low, and I'll say there's there's not a lot of people who, there's there's far fewer people who have blood pressure that's too low than too high. But if your blood pressure is too low, either because we've pushed it too low with medications, you know, uh, or just because you're someone who has this problem, uh, generally what people complain of is they feel lightheaded when they stand up, they get wobbly, they're weak. Uh, you know, I, I've, 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 I've seen patients like this, you know, where it's like their blood pressure may chronically run like 100 over 70. And then sometimes, especially if they're dehydrated, they stand up too quickly, they get lightheaded. It's those types of things. And that's just simply the oxygen not being able to get to certain tissues? Well, it's usually it means that you're not getting enough blood flow to your head when you stand up. And then you know, so you feel weak, lightheaded. You know, your body's trying to get you to sit back down to restore, you know, enough blood flow to your brain. Wow. So I'm sold. I, I want to look into this for myself. What are some of the dangers to using this imaging technology? I would say that, well, there's a certain amount, if you're talking about either a nuclear stress test or a CT, there's a certain amount of radi- radiation that comes with it. There's a certain amount of radiation to a lot of our imaging studies with x-rays and with CT. Ultrasound has no radiation. MRI has no radiation. Okay. Um, the, the radiation level you get with either a nuclear stress test or a CT is not very high, and it shouldn't put you off needing one. It shouldn't put you off having one of these tests if you have a legitimate reason for it. I, I would say one reason not to get these tests done if you don't need them is that they do you do accrue a certain amount of radiation exposure. Not enough that I think you should be worried about or panicked about it, but enough that you should not do them cavalierly with no for no reason. Okay, this is why when people say they've gotten a full body. CT scan done. I tend not to recommend that just to go on a fishing trip because, you know, it's, it is a non-trivial amount of radiation to do that. I wouldn't recommend unless there's an, a reason for it. The other, the other problem is you may find, you know, incidental things that end up getting over-treated, um, which is another reason not to go on these fishing expeditions. I mean, I, I would say all of these tests are safe, but they just need to be used appropriately. Okay. How about the availability of these tests? So uh, cardiac ultrasound, echocardiography, this should be available with any cardiologist you go to see. Nuclear stress testing, again, very widely available. Cardiac CT, cardiac MRI, typically these may be more restricted. You may need to go to a larger center to get them, particularly cardiac MRI, given the rarity of the expertise to be able to interpret them. That said, if you need one of these studies, it's not going to be a huge problem. You'll just need to you'll you may just you may need to be referred to a larger center. These may not be something that your cardiologist has in his own office. I see. But there's definitely ways to get them done. You know, certainly in Miami, there are many there are many places you can get these things done. If you really live out in the countryside, you may need to make more of a trip into a larger center to get them. So how should a patient talk to their healthcare provider about receiving this kind of Imagery. So I would, if you're talking about from the, the perspective of someone who is concerned and wants to know about their, their risk, 
I would say you can certainly bring up the calcium scoring to a PCP. They, they can order it. Uh, you should certainly know your blood pressure. Your PCP will be doing that for you. And you should make sure that you have your cholesterol numbers checked. Beyond that, any of these other tests, I, I would say they're, they're going to be used when you have a particular problem and you're having particular symptoms that are making your doctor, and at this point you should be seeing a cardiologist, concerned about your heart. So if you're having symptoms that make you worried, you're suddenly feeling more short of breath, you're having chest pains that you can't explain, you know, you're, you've lost you know, stamina, you're feeling lethargic, and it seems like it's more than just being out of shape, those are all legitimate reasons to consult with a cardiologist. And then we can make the determination if you need one of these other studies or not. Uh, if you just want to understand about your own risk, that's where I think getting the uh, calcium score may be useful. So if I was a smoker... What kind of tests should I be doing? What should I be focused on? Like, what's the risk for a smoker compared to everybody yeah, else? It's much higher. Okay. If smoking damages the lining of every blood vessel in the body every time you smoke, and it really is that simple. Wow. So this is so it comes not just with increased risk for lung cancer that everyone knows about. It comes with increased risk for heart heart disease. It comes with increased risk for stroke. So there's. If you are a smoker, the single best thing you can do for your health is to quit. Mm. It's it's really that simple, and it's it's not it's not an easy thing. I know that, and you know I've I've treated many patients with addiction issues, not just smoking, but other things as well. It's not easy, but it is it is fairly straightforward. It's so for people who have are, are contemplating it, you need to try. For people who have tried to get, who have tried in the past and it hasn't worked, you need to try again. Wow, so it's that serious. Yes, and if you have, um, if you've tried to quit in the past and it didn't work, I, I do want to give you this piece of encouragement, which is that the average number of times someone tries to quit smoking before they quit is actually seven. Really? Yes. Wow. So if you feel like, you know, I had a friend who just quit cold turkey, he just decided one day I'm done, and he quit and that was it, and you know you tried and it didn't go that way for you, that's not the norm for most people. We all know someone like this. I've treated patients like this. They said, you know, I just decided I was done with it, and I threw the cigarettes over my shoulder, and that was it. And great, but that's rare. But that's that's not the norm. I see. So for for patients who, if you've tried, for anyone who has tried to quit in the past and it hasn't worked, I really want you to try again. And I want, and I'd like you to talk to your doctor about other things that they might be able to do for you, whether that's you know, well, you know, bupropion, Chantix. Uh, there's a, there's a number of things out there that can help. Nicotine patches, nicotine patches like that. as well. Absolutely. Would nicotine patches be healthier for the heart? I mean, it's it's less bad than smoking. Okay. You still get the nicotine aspect of it, which is not ideal. But what you don't get is all of the tar, all of the uh, carcinogens, all of the all of the products of you know partial plant matter combustion that uh, that get that get inhaled. I see. So you seem like a pretty, you know, young doctor. You've been, school wasn't so long ago. What's some of the future of this type of imagery Mm -hmm. and technology? So I think that, I think that cardiac CT will become increasingly more important in cardiology as we go forward. As I said, right now, the technology has come on by leaps and bounds, but it's still sort of struggling to find its place. And there are, there are some practical barriers about the availability of the scanners, about the availability of people who know how to read them, uh, which I do, but but uh, it's not common. It's not like every cardiologist knows how to read these scans. 
So I think that will become more prevalent in the future. Um, I think people doing calcium scores to figure out what their risk is and kind of fine tune their risk profile will also become more common because I think people want to take charge of their own health and they want to understand their risk profile. And we as, as a nation, we need to start being more proactive about risk rather than reactive. Mm. One of the biggest problems with the American healthcare system and why it costs so much is we, we are very reactive. We only deal with things after the fact. You know, we'll, we'll spend thousands and thousands of dollars on the angioplasty, but we don't want to think about how could we have prevented, you know, that blockage from getting to that point in the first place. So if you could detect it earlier, make lifestyle changes, get someone on aspirin, get them on a statin, maybe that never has to happen at all. We treat healthcare like it's sickness care as opposed to the preventative front-end approach. Yes, it's, it's very backloaded and reactive rather than proactive. So is that something that's becoming increasingly popular in your field? I, I think there's an increasing desire from a lot of patients to take a more proactive approach rather than just waiting for something bad to happen and then dealing with it. So you mentioned before about how the smoking, you said something that blew my mind. You said it affects every vessel in your every body. Every vessel in the body, right. yes. Every time every you, time you smoke. Cigarette. Yes. That's wild. What type of imagery is there to look at the micro blood vessels? Because I know that mm-hmm. a lot of this imagery, it's focused on the arteries and veins. Yes. How about that micro? If you... If you need to, and there are certain situations where you would, you would typically go at it with an MRI or with a particular type of nuclear scan called a PET. If you want a PET scan, a PET scan, yes, a, a particular type of PET scan. It's not the same one as you would get for for cancer staging. Uh, those are the two ones that you would use. Sometimes we see people who have what really sounds for all the world like anginal chest pain. They have this kind of squeezing exertional pain, but we do a cath. There's no blockage to stent. And we think maybe they have disease in the small vessels further down that we can't see. You can look at that. You can look for that, really. You're not visualizing the vessels directly, but you're visualizing the effect of that with either the uh, the perfusion PET scan or with the MRI. Both of those are somewhat niche modalities that your cardiologist might need to refer out to. Okay. So people that have gone in for imagery mm-hmm. to look at early detection... What are some success stories that your patients have had? All right. So without going to, without um, you know going too deep into this, I, I saw a, a woman who was in her 50s recently, and she was Indian. And one of the interesting things about this risk calculator that you can use is that it does include a checkbox for race, but they, there were actually very few Asian people in the study that they used to come up with this data. So the checkboxes are really just black, white, or everybody else. So, because most of the population that was in that study was either black or white. And I think this was using data from a couple of decades ago as well, when, when there were not so many, you know, Indian-descended uh, people in the U.S. So, it's kind of anecdotally pretty well known among doctors that this risk calculator, it underestimates risk in South Asians. Mm. And it's not known exactly why. It's probably genetic. But I've definitely seen, including many of my, my friends, other doctors, who have had you know, family members that had you know, heart disease at fairly young ages without what you think of as the obvious risk factors. So this this lady, she had this problem. She had family members who'd had heart disease at relatively young ages, even though they were, you know, had reasonable lifestyle, they were thin. Her family was vegetarian as well. So she wanted to know, did she, you know, should she be taking a stat and what was her risk profile? So we did this calcium score on her and she had a little bit of plaque. It wasn't heinous. Uh, You know, it wasn't to the point that it was, you know, likely that it was, you know, imminently going to 
you know, rupture or anything, but it's it's like you want to get on it early, so it doesn't. So this is this is not about where are you now. This is about where you're going to be in five or ten years. Right. And this is about trying to intervene on things so you're not ending up in the cath lab getting stents five to ten years from now. So because we found that little bit of plaque early on, we did go ahead and start her on a statin. It wasn't so much that we put her on aspirin because aspirin has some risk of GI bleeding. So we tend to reserve that for people who have more significant disease. But we we started her on uh, on a statin. She was going to work on some lifestyle changes as well. She was decently healthy already, but you know you can always eat a little better, exercise a yeah. little more, and try to optimize her risk factors that way. So you know I can't uh, obviously I don't have a crystal ball here, but when you when you see enough patients like that, you're going to be preventing people from having problems down the line. And I think that's a very good example of what I would like to see more of in medicine is this kind of proactive approach, managing the risk factors. And primarily those risk factors are high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, and smoking. And it, managing those on the front end so there are fewer people needing stents and bypass on the back end. So Dr. Leaf, wow, that was a very informative episode. I feel I like so. I learned so much, not only about the imagery, but also just about heart attacks and strokes overall. Do you have any last words to give to our audience? I, I would just reiterate that point that I that I made before, which is that if you manage the core risk factors for heart disease, which is which are the same risk factors uh, for for stroke, those that's the number one and the number three killer in the U.S. And we tend to only deal with these after something catastrophic has happened to people. So that's my that's my wish for the the audience that's listening is that you take charge of your own health and work on managing those risk factors so that you don't end so that you don't have to see someone like me. Awesome. Well, if somebody would want to see somebody like you specifically see you, where can they find you? Yes. And of course I'm, I'm del- anyone who wants to have a consultation about, you know, risk prevention, you know, delighted, del- I'll be delighted to, of course, but you know, I, I, I do, uh, you know, if we can prevent, if we can prevent you from, from ever needing to, you know, or especially prevent you from needing to see my surgical colleagues, that would be the best case scenario. But yes, you can come find me in, uh, in Palm Beach County. I have an office in Boynton Beach and another one in Royal Palms. Very nice. Well, we'll have all of his links down below as well as the link to the mycardiologist.com site where you can check out over 50 doctors. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode and, as, and learned as much as I did. Thank you for tuning in. And make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. To learn more about My Cardiologist, please visit us at mycardiologist.com.